Hi, and thanks again for listening to Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Pastor Brian Kiley. During our Faith and Culture series, we invited questions from the audience during all four evenings. What we've done in this episode is we've taken all of that Q&A time and put it together into this one episode so you can hear every question that was asked during the series. Like I said, these questions came from the audience and they were not given to Pastor Lance before he was asked them on stage. As you're listening, if what you hear provokes additional questions, we always invite you to email us at ask, A-S-K, at bridgeway.church. Thank you again for listening and enjoy. Um, we're going to dive right into our question time. We have our first question, um, which is, why is it, do you think, that about 85% of teachers in schools are women, but the church has such an issue with women in leadership? Uh, yeah, so the, the first thing about um, women as communicators and teachers. So I think that everybody across the board has to acknowledge that God built women in such a way that they are communicatively strong. Um, and so, for example, whether or not you're on uh, one side, which would be on the complementarian or hierarchical side, you would say, well, yes, God built women to be able to communicate very well with children and with other women. That's where they're using their gifts. I think everybody believes that women are gifted. The question is, where can you utilize those gifts? So as far as women being primarily the teachers in educational systems, that would make sense. Why? Because they're really great at it. So once again, if you're gonna talk about just getting the best person for the job, you're probably gonna end up having a lot of female teachers out of their strengths. Uh, so for example, uh, my father was in the educational system, had his doctorate in education and was a teacher and then a principal and then a superintendent. His whole world was dealing with females because the teaching system was primarily female. So once again, why that doesn't translate into the church is not so much that there is a view that women are not able to do it. There is a block as to whether or not women should do it. Uh, and because of that block, it is also backwards really affected women being able to stretch their wings and develop their gifts within the church. That has been hampered. We'll be dealing with that in some coming weeks. But yes, I think everybody has to acknowledge that women are extremely strong teachers. The question is, is where is their role? Awesome. We have a, a kind of a question asking for some more clarity yeah. on um, kind of the mature revelation, that concept that you were giving us. And yeah. it says, I'm un I am unsure if by mature revelation you're saying that new truth is being revealed to us or that improved interpretation increases our understanding. Can you clarify and how is it different than progressive revelation? Yeah, you, you absolutely nailed it. So whoever you are, wow, you were really paying attention. Um, the answer is yes. Uh, both of that is is correct. So, for example, I mean God always has a plan in mind. It is all about his communication. Uh, so, once again, it's not that God is just figuring stuff out and letting us know about it, like he's trying to come up to speed, right? 
It's that he's saying, listen, I have such a complex system of truth for you, you can't handle the truth. You understand what I'm talking about? Like you couldn't handle what I was about to give you, so I have to give it to you in little baby bites. But he is always revealing his full heart on a matter. Now, the reason why I don't use the term progressive revelation, which ultimately you can see that whether it's progressing or it's maturing, those are very similar synonymous terms. The reason I don't use progressive revelation is because of connotations. There have been connotations throughout the years that progressive revelation means, oh, I just got a brand new truth and it supersedes scripture. That is a big no-no. Now, did Jesus do that? Yeah, but he's allowed to because he's God. Does that make sense? Because he actually changed stuff. He said, you were told that the, uh, the sacrificial system was the way to do it. I'm telling you it is not anymore. Okay, when he made that change, that was a dramatic shift. He's allowed to make that call, right? Whereas whenever I talk about maturing, I'm talking about a further explanation of what his heart is. You say, well, can we dig some of that out by good scholarship? Yes, that is still the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us in truth. So what Jesus said is it's better that I go away because the Holy Spirit will remind you of what I said and teach you all things. In other words, as you're in a learning process, the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. Remember, when we talk about the book of Revelation, everybody always thinks of it in terms of apocalyptic or prophetic. Revelation means to lift the lid off. That's what it really means. The idea is, oh, I'm just going to let you know what was always there. So when we talk about revelation and we're talking about our understanding, it's never going to contradict scripture because God doesn't contradict himself. He gives you a fuller explanation of what his heart was all along. Another question is, um, how do you answer people who insist that Deborah was only made a judge because there were no men available for the job? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the first thing is that's called sloppy scholarship. Uh, it doesn't say that. So you're literally making stuff up. Now, that is what is considered eisegesis. So there's two fancy terms when you're talking about biblical interpretation that sound a little bit creepy, and one is eisegesis, the other is exegesis. Exegesis means you're pulling something out. Eisegesis means you're putting something in. We all have a bias. When you start reading stuff into the scripture, so for example, Dr. Schaefer Elliott said, hey, what did you guys see in the Bible? Where was Bathsheba? She's on a roof. You eisegeted and read that back into it. That's actually not in the text. David was on the roof, and you're now reading backwards and putting a, a bias back into the story. So when you say, well, Deborah was only there because there was no men, that is incorrect. So even just looking at the story on face value, uh, she has a man she engages with in the story named Barak. He is actually kind of the commander of the armed forces. Why wasn't he it? I mean, obviously, you got a dude right there in the story. And you know what his response was? I will not go unless you lead me. <laughs> so clearly you go, well, there was no dude. No, there was dudes. They just knew who was the best person for the job, and she was it. 
So. I understand. By the way, I understand dude is not academic. <laughs> I understand that I just blow my credibility out of the water when I say words like totally and awesome. I am aware of that. All right, moving on. Just makes you relatable. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Pastor Lance, earlier on you said, in, is this an element of first priority? Yeah. It is not. But a woman might say, easy for you to say, you're not historically marginalized. Can you elaborate on why it's not a first priority? Uh, Yes. So when we talk about first priority, I'm thinking of salvation issues and non-salvation issues. That's my only marker. It has nothing to do with the power of it. When I was talking about it being vital, I was talking about it being very important. Those are all issues that have to deal with human beings From God's point of view, there is salvation issues that, for example, uh, it is not in the Apostles' Creed, right? And women shall be leaders in the church. Why? Because the Apostles' Creed was trying to crush down and say, what are the core elements of Christianity that we all can agree on and talk about that which applies to total Christian life? Now, beyond that, there's a million important issues. It is not what I would consider a primary issue, meaning are you going to go to heaven or not based on it? Everything else is secondary. Secondary can be direly important, but it doesn't mean that it's salvation-based. So yes, does it sound like I'm just being a a jerk male, right? Of just going, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Not at all. I think it's a massive deal, but once again, I'm not looking at it from a human standpoint, I'm looking at it when God laid things out. For example, I'm going to share with you in coming weeks, Jesus Christ had a primary mission and everything else was secondary. He said, I came came to seek and save that which is lost. I came to destroy the works of the devil. He had a very specific mission. Were other things important? Yes. As a matter of fact, there are other things that we live off every day. He said, I got one primary mission everything else is secondary. So I'm looking at it more through his lens than ours. What challenges has the feminist movement brought to the church, if any at all? Uh, So ironically, I uh, just did a podcast on the Lance Hahn podcast that was on Christian womanhood, understanding Christian womanhood. And I addressed the issue of feminism. Um, Feminism has had three waves uh, that have come through America and each brought pros and cons. When I was talking about what does feminism mean, is it good or bad, it really depends on what you're looking at, and here's why. The technical definition of feminism means advocating for the equal rights of women. I don't think anyone would go, wow, that's terrible. What a horrible thing, feminism. Okay, if it wasn't for feminism, women wouldn't vote. If it wasn't for feminism, women wouldn't be able to own property. If it wasn't for feminism, women wouldn't be able to be in the workplace. So has feminism done incredible things? Of course it has. Where I tend to see challenges with feminism is when they make strange bedfellows. In other words, they start partnering with things that are not specifically female issues. So they will partner up with things, even things that are very close. In my podcast, I was arguing that I do not believe that the Roe versus Wade decision about abortion was primarily a female issue. Why? Because it involves a man and a baby in the process. So actually, a female is one-third of that trio. So what you're doing is when feminism began to push forward the abortion debate, 
It was linking with another group, and now those two groups were coming as a whole, and people said, I don't like feminism, they're pro-abortion. Hold on. Depends on how you want to look at that subject. So, all I'm saying is that throughout the years, feminism has got some uh, unfair criticism, and people casting them a side glance and saying, painting them with a big brush that says, all feminists are bad, all feminism is bad. That is absolutely incorrect. So once again, it depends on what sliver, just like we have to do with the Bible, with Bible interpretation and dig in and find context, you actually have to do that on a daily basis with regular subjects. When you say feminism, what do you mean by it? What are you talking about? You're talking about the first wave, the second wave, the third wave. What part of the wave are you talking about? What subject are you ultimately trying to dig down into? Is it ultimately a women's issue or not? It gets very messy. So you can't just, I know it's easier to just categorize and stereotype and just move on, but you just can't be wise and do that. Does that make sense? This is kind of going back to the Adam and Eve commands. Um, You mentioned that Adam and Eve were given the same commands. I'm confused. In Genesis 2.16, God gives Adam the commands, but Eve isn't alive yet. Is it assumed that she either wasn't given the commands, didn't know them, or that Adam filled her in? Yeah, so there's multiple times it's actually referred to. So I read two different passages. One said, and God told them and lists the commands. Then the other reading was, and he gave it to Adam before Eve was alive. So you go, which one is true? They're both true. Because he gave them to Adam alone, and then he gave them to Eve when she showed up. So he gave them to both of them equally. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to the creation of animals Mm -hmm. being two by two, but for humans, male being created and instructed, then woman? Uh, yeah, I, I, think I'm, I think I can get into what you intended by the question. I'm a little bit lost on that one. Um, so here, here's what they're referring to. So there is a part in the creation account where animals were coming in two by two, and it says that for Adam, no helper or suitable helper was found. Um, and, I, and I guess part of the question can be that, but the other part, what I think you were trying to get to, was saying... God made them kind of all at the same time, male and female, and then he kind of did it in a staggered way with mankind. I I think anything that I would say about that would be speculative. I I, I really have no idea. The Bible does not comment it at all. One thing that it does, however, is that when those animals were parading by Adam and he was naming them, it was highlighting his lack. Oh, look, they got their partner. Oh, look, they got their partner. Oh, look, they got their partner. Where's mine? And so that was supposed to stir in him a feeling of loss and lack. Um, Because remember, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. God built in a design flaw that man cannot operate by himself. And he was supposed to recognize that in maturing revelation. Does that make sense? Like how I did that? Just kind of weaved it. That was really tricky. (laughs) Totally cheesy. 
Um, where does scripture show Eve as the brains of the operation between Eve being created in Genesis 2.22 and the temptation in Genesis 3.1? Yeah. So once again, it is loosely putting pieces together. Um, once, I said, I believe that woman was the, the Bible does not say the woman was the brains of the operation. I'm putting the pieces together. Why in the world did Satan attack the woman and it all fell down? Why was she that person? That doesn't make any sense to me if she was not viewed as, the, as a seat of wisdom. Here's the other thing. When she went to eat the fruit, do you know what was tempting to her? Getting even smarter. It says, and she looked at the fruit and it was beautiful, looked like it tasted yummy, and it was desirable for increasing wisdom. If she was not about wisdom, why was that part of the temptation? So in her mind, she's like, dang, I can even get smarter. I'm all, so her and wisdom were already being linked together. Then you have Proverbs talking about woman being, or the, the personification of wisdom is female. And then you start putting all the pieces and going, oh my goodness, I wonder if that was her role. The other element that you would put in there is the word that is used for the forming of Adam is a little bit more of a practical term. Kind of like, um, I made a ball. The ball gets thrown. This term that is used for a woman being formed from Adam is a little bit more of an architectural term with complexity. So you have an added piece. Does it really matter? I don't know. Are we making too much of it? I'm putting all the pieces together, and it kind of looks one way. So that's my view. How do we as women gently address pastors that would say, I'm not opposed to a woman teaching in our church, but then never provide examples or examples on a Sunday or a church-wide event? Um, so basically address yeah. the, the inconsistencies. Yeah. So first of all, I think that what you'll end up hearing from me is that the structure of today is not in the church is not primarily gender-based, it's calling-based. And it's office-based. So once again, anytime that you're going to be addressing an office, there needs to be a respect and a submitting to an office. It's the same reason why I told you I stayed here for 24 years submitting to a group that I believed was supposed to be my, my uh, covering. Does that make any sense? So if you're ever going to address a pastor that is being inconsistent with what they're saying, you come in with a humility and you come in with a submitting view to whatever his authority is. However, you're allowed to point out an inconsistency. You're allowed to say, hey, this may be on your list of important stuff. It happens to be number 25. What I would like to know, is there any interest in moving it up the list? Because it's important to me. Does that make sense? So for example, people are doing it all the time to me. Hey, when are you gonna teach on homelessness? Hey, when are you gonna teach on this? When are you gonna teach on that? When are you gonna teach, you know, constantly. They're doing it in a kind way, but they're saying, hey, that issue is important to me. Is there any way that that could become important to you right now? So I think you can do that. What you don't wanna do is go up and challenge authority and say, hey, I don't see it that way. You need to change. Why aren't you bringing, so-and-so's doing it, so -and all that is inappropriate. You always come in and you suggest, you have told us that you would love to have a female voice in the pulpit. You think it could be this year? That I think is much more gentle. 
How should a student of God's word discern when to dismiss an instruction, such as Paul in his letters, due to the time or culture, and when to accept the instruction as applicable to this day and time? Um, so we're going to get into that very heavily in week three with Paul's teachings. I would suggest to you that we are never just dismissing something where you kind of go, oh, I don't look, look at that part. Oh, no. All of it's important. The Bible says that uh, all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for reproof and correction and it goes on and on and on. You never just throw stuff out. What we're trying to do is find out what Paul's intention was, stay true to his intention and use it as he wanted you to use it. Nothing gets thrown out it just gets properly interpreted. So uh, when we say there are things that are cultural and don't apply to today, we're not throwing it out. When I say to you, we do not have to follow kosher laws, why would I say that? Am I throwing it out or am I interpreting it that Jesus had a further revelation that declared all foods clean and therefore the Bible authorized the adjustment and we went forward? Nobody's throwing anything out. We don't do that. Scripture itself should, of course, be our primary study. However, reading certain commentaries seems to take one side, Mm -hmm. where others contradict the other side. So any suggestions for when to use commentaries or how to choose them? Uh, First of all, the fact that you know that means that you're already a step ahead of the game. So here's what I ended up doing in in my research. I always choose commentaries that disagree uh, because what it does is it forces me to see both sides and I let them battle it out. And then I'm going through and I'm saying, well, that's a good point from that one. That's a good point from that one. What does it look like wisdom is? So I would suggest to you that when you start using all the commentaries that keep saying all the same things, you're kind of being led It's like leading the witness. Have you ever heard that phrase where you're kind of just, hey, I'm just going to keep salting into the same thing. And then all of a sudden we go, oh my gosh, everyone thinks this. No, everyone you're reading thinks that. (laughs) Not everyone thinks that. So the more that you can use scholarship that debates between each other, the more you're going to find wisdom in the middle there somewhere. But you're absolutely right. Um, uh, One thing that... uh, that is kind of embarrassing to me, is that in this subject of, we're gonna talk about a little bit later more, in the subject of women in leadership and equality versus hierarchical views, the ESV, the very one that I selected as the version for our church, leans the other way. Like when I, every time I'm reading out of it, I'm gonna sit there and read it to you and have to correct them. And, it, so, and we're going to go through. Out of all the English translations, they're one of the few that translate it this way. And there's a clear bias. So once again, even the Bible translation you're reading has a leaning. You just need, that's why we have to do good scholarship to dig it out. So helpful. This will be our last question yeah. for the evening. Um, what is the best way to have a conversation with someone who disagrees with women being in ministry or leadership? Um, treat others like you would want to be treated. Our culture is really bad at this. Um, we are always looking for weapons whereby we can smack the person that disagrees. Uh, I am going to give you During this series, if you believe that women should be in ministry, 
in various levels, you're going to get plenty of weapons. If you use those to harm another person, you are way out of line and you are not following the heart of God. That's the bottom line. So here's my encouragement to you, that debate that is healthy is fun. Mean-spirited debate is destructive. So I would say, uh, hey, you know what? I know that you don't see this. I've been learning a whole bunch of stuff. Will you do a Bible study with me? Will you help me look at it with me? The other thing is always ask questions more than stating facts. Because if you state a fact, a fact, the other person goes into a defensive posture. If you ask a question, they go into a discovery posture. Those are very different things. Currently in America, this is a lost art. We mostly will then go back and get more information and say, oh, I must convince you. But no one's listening to you. They're only listening to themselves. So whatever truth you've now found is actually useless. They're not going to hear it anyway. So, once again, why do you want to convince them? Is it because you feel insecure about your view that they don't agree with you? Maybe they don't agree with you with a whole bunch of stuff. Does that mean you're going to break fellowship with them? Like, what do you want to know it for? Do you want to go, well, I want everyone to think like I do. Well, that might be your problem, right? <laughs> why do you really want other people to see it your way? What you'll find is you get deeper into those. Sometimes a lot of it's insecurity, Sometimes a lot of it is fear, right? And so if we could probably sort a little bit of that out and say, honestly, I believe that I want to continue to go deeper and have you be a partner with me in this. And because we don't see eye to eye on this, I feel like there's a little bit of a gap in our relationship. So what if we studied it and talked about it together and arrived at a conclusion together? I think that's more unifying. It's probably the best way. And even in those places where we can just agree to disagree yes, and then continue to maintain fellowship, I think is such a witness, especially right now. Um, it's just such a powerful, powerful witness. Yes. Uh, my, my wife is, is here uh, with my kiddos. And uh, you can feel free to ask her if she agrees with everything I talk about. <laughs> and whether or not we agree to disagree. Does that make sense? So we, uh, we've been married since January 7th of 1995 and have not agreed on everything ever. <laughs> but we still have fellowship. So once again, I think there is plenty of room to say, you know what, we don't see eye to eye for a variety of reasons. And I will tell you, this is a little bit kind of controversial what I'm about to say, but I do believe that sometimes God does not pull a veil from people's eyes on things, sometimes until the right season. And sometimes that veiling creates an iron sharpening iron to make you dig in. I will tell you that sitting in this church for 24 years disagreeing about this particular issue has forced me to grow. It didn't make me worse. It made me better. And so once again, I just encourage you, do not break fellowship, but let's continue to learn. It's okay if we don't agree on everything. Amen?
we are really looking forward to diving into our question and answer time with Pastor Lance. Are you ready for the first one? Hey, I'm ready. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. If the Bible is enough and the only text that we all agree is infallible, Mm -hmm. why do we need all the other man-written books and resources to give us accurate content? So... Whether it's in Judaism where they had commentary, where rabbis would comment on it, or whether or not it's commentaries of today, right? When, when God says something, it's pretty profound. I think that part of what God did is he talks, he has to talk down to us. It's kind of what Martin Luther said, it's almost like baby talk when God had to talk to us because he's so high and lifted up, he is so other, he's so... Uh, powerful and majestic that for him to try to talk to a human being in our limitation, he has to kind of dumb things down a little bit for us. But even his dumbing down is so multi-layered, it's so powerful that what God does is he allows us to talk in community to pull out all the goodness, right? Does that make sense? So for example, uh, we all know John 3.16, right? It's kind of the, the one famous one, right, for football season. It's, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, how many sermons have been preached on that passage? Okay, thousands. They weren't all identical. So as a matter of fact, if you highlight one term, that brings out one richness. If you highlight another term, that brings out another richness. So I think that why we need all the other books, it's not that we are going to alter Scripture, it's we will understand Scripture. So uh, once again, they're not on equal playing field. Just because you have somebody that's super smart, I I happen to cite N.T. Wright, a theologian who I happen to think is super, super smart. He is not gospel fact. He's a man making a comment He's not on equal playing field with Scripture. But if he has insights from the Holy Spirit, I want to hear what that guy has to say because he's going to make me think of something and go, oh my gosh, I never even thought of that. Wow, that's true. Does that make sense? So I think a lot of it is commentary to bring out the richness. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, The next one is kind of in relationship to the stuff you were talking about with the new Adam. Yeah. It says, Jesus didn't have an Eve who committed the original sin at his side. What is your opinion about why God didn't have Jesus marry or have a wife as a partner in ministry? Yeah, so once again, the first thing that, that gets mentioned in that question is that Eve sinned first. And once again, Paul does highlight that, but the whole rest of Scripture puts it all on Adam, right? So when you talk about the fall of mankind, when you talk about sin being passed down, when you talk about original sin, it actually doesn't biblically go back to Eve. It goes back to Adam. And there is some question whether or not that it was the biblical view that the soul was transferred from the man as it goes down into the baby. Remember this whole idea about where do souls come from when little babies get souls? Nobody knows the answer to that. But their view was it would transfer from the male, the father, What that means is whatever was broken in Adam got transferred, and that's how original sin permeated everything, right? So Jesus was handling. Now, did he have to be the next Adam in every regard? No. He just needed to be in one key way. There was one that caused a whole humankind explosion 
And then another one came and caused a humankind explosion of goodness. So he was only duplicating the part that really mattered about Adam, whether Adam was married or not. Uh, so let's go back to the, the second part of that, which is, why didn't Jesus get married? Um, so first of all, I think one of the misnomers we have in uh, modern-day Christianity is that the solution to loneliness is marriage. That's actually not what Scripture says. Uh, the solution, it says man, it is not good for man to be alone. I think the solution to mankind's loneliness is community. It's not marriage. The reason why I know that is because our two big dogs weren't married. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. And if you have our biggest deals in all of Christianity and they were living full lives, Paul even said, it's better that you are single. So clearly we don't have a solution that marriage is a necessity. It is not. It can be a way of helping community because marriage is supposed to be a helpful blessing community. But once again, it's not necessary. That's very, very different. So I don't think that when Jesus came, remember I was highlighting that Jesus was very driven and very focused. He had one job to do. I'm here to die. If Paul was under the impression, man, I don't need to be married right now, because I'll tell you what, when Paul and all his people were being drug out and persecuted, remember he used to do this, when you drag out Christians, let me ask you a question. When would you cave faster? Somebody comes to you and say, puts a gun to your head and says, will you deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or if he puts a gun to your spouse's head. This is Paul's point. Why in the world are we bothering with all this stuff when we're dying in the streets? This whole business about I'm going to go get married, what, you're going to start a life and, and have, right now we're being burned alive under Nero's rule. What are you talking about? Why do we care? I would rather you be single. Once again, get into the context. He would not have that same message today because he's like, listen, yeah, there are concerns about that, but you're in a peaceful time. You're not in a persecuted place in the world. Okay, I got different rules for you guys. It's contextual. So I think for Jesus, I live a perfect life till I'm 30. That was the Levitical age of fulfillment. I go public three years, I'm out. Why in the world would I leave my wife crushed? And then everybody, anytime there is Da Vinci Code problems, right? Uh, oh, hey, we had kids. Maybe there's Jesus blood in them. Oh, they're the Messiah. He's like, y'all are idiots. I'm not doing that. So that's my opinion. I didn't see that one coming. Okay. <laughs> that's my job. Um, switching gears. Yes. Um, where do you see the future of women in leadership at Bridgeway? Um, I what I've always wanted from day one was the freedom to do what God calls. That's, that's, you say, well, what's the, what's the plan? The plan is I want to integrate whatever God wants me to integrate without running up against a brick wall. So, for example, um, you're going to hear in week four that I think that we have a very important call from God to involve female voices in the boardrooms and in the pulpits because we need it as a people, right? Once again, God can do whatever God does. We actually have a need 
for female voice in these two areas. So when we open up and we have, uh, when I'm meeting with my elder board and, and we're all sitting around a bunch of dudes and we're like, hey, what do you think we should do practically about this? Well, I don't know. What do you think a woman would say? <laughs> It'd be really helpful to go, what do you say, right? Does that make sense? As opposed to pause, let me go find one. Okay, and the other thing is, when it comes to, when it comes to the pulpit, the reality is I don't let anybody come up here that I do not trust, that is not going to correctly handle the Word of God. But to have a beautiful perspective, there's a reason why I have multiple teachers. They all come in with a different perspective. Why is that? To make you more well-rounded. Why in the world would I not want to be able to say, listen, God has encouraged that there is a message I would like this woman to bring, as opposed to going, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. So the whole point is not how do we get Bridgeway to be taken over by women only, you know, and how can we lead a revolution? Like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I'm a dude. So anyway, that's a little bit of a limit right there uh, because I'm not, I'm not going to become one of the women. Like, I'm still a guy. I don't want to be a woman. I want to be a guy. And so what I want is to be able to integrate based on calling and office as opposed to gender. That's actually uh, my, my goal. There you go. That was it. It seems obvious that in Jesus' intent, women were to be treated equally and fairly within the church. If that was the case then, why do we find ourselves 2,000 years later, specifically in the Western church, still trying to implement fair and equal treatment of women? Uh, we're slow to pick up on stuff. Um, not only that, but it's scary. Um, this, everything is the way it is because people like it that way. When you bring change, it rattles systems. It means that things are going to shake out. And so what happens is, is for example, when I led the church in the supernatural in 2014, I had a really big reaction. Now, for those that walk through it, realize, oh my gosh, Bridgeway is still Bridgeway. But the fear was, this is going to change everything. And there was, oh my gosh, it's going to get weird. And then it didn't, but no one was willing to listen through that because change scares people. It means things are going to be different. And if they're different, I bet you it's going to be bad. So what we do is we tend to remain in our comfort zones. Um, I think that because there is some very important, significant biblical passages that we need to handle, which are actually handling this next week. Uh, I need everybody to be there. This is where we're going to be walking into Paul the Apostle's teaching on this very issue about why it's been limited anyway. But I think that we've been slow on the uptake of a bunch of stuff, right? I think we've been slow on the uptake of ethnic diversity integration in the church, in leadership of the church. It took us a long time to integrate properly into sports, which is a secular environment based on merit, based on people wanting to make more money, having the best teams, and that was still resistant. So I think that people are afraid that there's always going to be, you know, you've always heard this phrase, um, a slippery slope. Everybody's afraid of the slippery, apparently slippery slopes are super bad. When I was little, I used to slide on cardboard down slippery slopes, and it was super fun. But anyway, the fear of, oh my gosh, 
it's all gonna unravel. That one fear right there creates a resistance to healthy adjustments. And so I think we're still wrestling on a lot of stuff. In many of your paraphrases of the biblical accounts of Jesus utilizing, elevating women in his ministry, mm -hmm. you depict Jesus as shaming the men yes. by highlighting the women. Yeah. I'm struggling to reconcile this with the heart of the Father. Can you help me close the gap? Uh, yeah. So first of all, God has no problem shaming people. Let's get that real clear. Uh, if you read any of the Old Testament, it will be real clear. He says embarrassingly horrific things to people. So the heart of the Father is saying, if there's correction that needs to be, you have to remember, how did he talk to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers. He's like, you're all snakes. He called them whitewashed tombs. So no, no, no. Jesus was completely fine in thrashing. He threw the tables over and whipped everything to make the whole temple get cleared. Jesus has no problem bringing correction where correction is necessary. When you want to read Revelation or you want to read Jeremiah and it's talking about the blood's coming up to the bridle of the horses and these birds are gorging on the flesh of the dead. Okay, I'm not quite sure how you see the heart of the Father, but we need to be real clear. He's also a warrior God. So this whole business about he's only polite is actually incorrect. We've whitewashed him a little bit with a nice brush, right? He's now Bob Ross. Happy trees. <laughs> and you go, no, no. He is a guy that says king of kings and lord of lords on his thigh. He has blazing eyes of fire. Out of his mouth comes a sword with which he slays people. Jesus Christ killed 144,000 Assyrian warriors in one night as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. So no. Let's be real clear. When correction comes in, he comes in strong. But does that mean he doesn't love? No. He's very loving, but he's very much about discipline as well. Does that make sense? If the church you love doesn't allow women to serve in the area that you feel gifted and called, what should you do? Uh, I personally submitted and committed for 24 years. I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to hear from me lead a revolution. You're going to hear from me that I didn't agree with it for two and a half decades. Um, so what do I think you should do? I think you should follow the voice of the Lord. I was called to submit. I was called to humble myself and learn. I was called to say, this is not your season. I was called to say, wait on my timing. So I don't know what your calling is. Your calling may well be, I want you to do what Pastor Christus said, right? Which was, what are the openings that you have? How do you be able to vent all your stuff in the appropriate areas? Now, if the Lord is calling you to do something different, you need to get some clarity on that, and especially from your leadership. I think it is fair for you to ask your leadership of your church, what do you think I should do? Because that allows them, if they go, well, I just think you should suck it up and deal with it. That's not a great response. But if they say, you know what? Uh, I just don't feel like that's open and I don't see that happening, then you need to understand that that is going to be your environment. I would, I would be sad if people just jump because it's not what they want. 
I don't think any of this life is what we want. I think this life is what we're called to. And I think sometimes that's very, very hard. So I, I do think that having humility and having a soft heart is more important than getting what you want because then you'll be proud of what you did as opposed to regret, right? It was said that Judaism didn't favor women and often spoke negatively about them. Why would the book of Proverbs speak of wisdom metaphorically as a woman then? Yeah, so it's my, it's my argument that there were glimpses of it should be different, it should be different, it should be different all along the way. And they were simply ignored. Um, I think that if you see a lot of the resistance to using the book of Ruth and Esther throughout history because it's women, I think you're missing the heart of God. God's going, I'm trying to tell you something and you keep blocking me because it's not your paradigm. Stop doing that. So I think that all along the way, God's the one that raised up Deborah. God, that, that was his choice. God was the one that used JL to kill that guy and set her people free. God, God raised these women up to do these things. So I think he was doing these all along the way. But once again, it was not the normal pattern. And once, I'm not telling you, I need to be very clear on this. I'm not telling you that all of it is on mankind. God set up the structure of Israel. Are we clear on that? That was not like, oh, and man just blew it because they were trying to abuse women. Who told Moses how the law ought to go? That was a God setup. But why did he do it that way? I believe that that was very clearly to lead the curse because there's ramifications for sin. Lead, let the curse sit for a long time and then we'll renew it and redeem it. I think it was built under a curse system by God on purpose. So I also think that there's times when God would veil people's eyes to allow that, like for example, the Bible says that there hasn't been a full revival in Israel yet because there's still a veil covering the eyes of the Jews towards the Messiah. And I think some of them did. You know, everyone always goes, oh, the Jews all hated Jesus. Je Jesus was a Jew. His whole crew was Jews. The, the nation that lifted him up and shouted Hosanna and were throwing things, palm branches, they're all Jews. There was lots of Jewish people that loved Jesus. But the religious leaders hold the keys. And they weren't ready for that kind of change. Can you talk a little bit more about why or how all three parts of the Trinity are male? Yeah, so um, the Father is the obvious one, right? Um, why would it, it would be referred to as Father? Father is always male. Um, and then Jesus came as a guy. That's easy. Well, and then the pronoun that is used for the Holy Spirit says he every time. So that, that's the simple answer. They're all referred to as male. But once again, Spirit is neither male nor female. But in talking about it, they're going to refer as male because he's the originator. Anything that has to do with God is the prime mover. I use that phrase a lot because it stuck in my head as a kid. I love the idea that it's the first one to initiate and cause things to happen. That's what the phrase prime mover means. God, by definition, is the prime mover of all things. That is always going to be male 
because it's initiator. So anything that's initiator will be male, if that makes any sense. So that was my argument earlier today. Who are some of the women, both personally and from afar, who have inspired you, discipled you, or shaped your thinking? Yeah, so my mom's my spiritual role model, always has been. Uh, I watched my dad, and I watched my mom, and my mom lived a life that my dad did not. I watched God become her husband when my parents got divorced. I've watched it all the way till today. I've watched him do extraordinary things. I watched my mom go through hard times, and she chose God more than anything else. She was the one that was reading her scripture every night. She was the one that was constantly praying for us kids. She was the one that was consistent. She was the one that believed God when things were impossible. It was God was the one that allowed her to start a business after she had been divorced and had cancer and started a a flourishing business. He's the one that allowed her to finally give up that business at the age of 82 when she finally retired. God's the one that has done all these things. So I watched her relationship with God, and I said, I I want my guts to be like that. I had zero interest in the external modeling because I'm a guy, and I want to be fully male. But I knew my guts. I wanted them to be like my mom because, once again, I didn't have a lot of... uh, on-fire male role models until I was at least 13, 14 years old. And then um, I started patterning after some of those guys. But um, when I was super young uh, and I was wrestling with panic disorder, uh, my mom's best friend was a lady in this area that was, she did kind of lay counseling. And she was the one that gave me my scripture verses for my life. God would not give me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. I, me- I, me- you know, I memorized that at six years old. Um, so my mom came from a church that was pretty messed up when she was young. I mean, I'll, I'll call it, I think it looked like a little cult. She'll be mad at me for saying that on, on camera, but, uh, I think it's weird, but anyway, but that was a female senior pastor. So my, my, that my mom's family moved from Illinois to California to follow her pastor, a female pastor out here. So Once again, I grew up around where a lot of women were leaders. And so to me, it was very normal. Um, But as far as, you know, they were caring for me and leading by example, but I didn't have women disciple me. I didn't have men disciple me. It's kind of been me and God for a long, long time. So, So I would simply say I have a high respect for women, but once again, I would believe, and I need you to hear me on this, that if we're ever going to get the church into its power place, men better step up. I need the men to get back in the church and do what men do. Because I'm looking out when I preach, there's an awful lot of women following God. And I'm, I know for sure that until we have men rise up, and take their proper place, we're going to have a weak church. So once again, I'm not trying to, none of this is an argument that, that women have to be everything and do everything. I think that would be lopsided. I just want it to be the way God wanted it. We have a question from last week that we are going to revisit because I didn't get a chance to really ask 
Um, so why does it seem like you purposefully downplay or denigrate the male example to contrast and positively dramatize the female example? Um, I, you know, I actually ended up not just having that question kind of come in submitted, but I had a couple people ask me that uh, in person. Uh, and, and once again, this is a little tricky because in one sense, we're talking about one slice of life, one slice of theology, one slice of the church. I was trying to highlight some pieces about women, and unfortunately, when you do that, then people are going to go, well, you're just being mean to the men. Obviously, I'm, I, I don't believe that I'm being mean to the men. I am a man, and I, I like men. Um, I'm not anti-man. Um, but when we're talking about this issue... I wanted to make sure that both Jesus and Paul ended the discussion that women can. Now, once again, there's a lot of arguments, I think, that are a little bit healthier on whether or not women should. But I don't, want, I don't think that there's any more freedom to argue whether or not women can do something. So in order to make that argument strong, I was explaining and highlighting what Luke did, which was the contrast back and forth. And the women in this element ended up doing it better than the men. That was to silence the argument that women innately can't be as good as men. I don't think that that is a fair argument, and I don't think it's in the Bible. We can have a healthy debate about whether or not women can but shouldn't because of some call of God or a design of God. I think that's a fairer conversation, but I really don't think it should be a conversation about whether or not women are capable, right? Uh, so when I do that, I lean in very strongly on showing a contrast because for thousands of years, it's been argued that women can't. So I was trying to reset the apple cart by leaning heavily one way. You're going to hear next week that I actually believe the church has leaned too far into the feminine. And I will have a whole discussion about where I believe men need to rise up and men need to be empowered and men need to be drawn. I mean, we'll get into that, but once again, you have to allow me to go through all four weeks to be able to see it balance out. But I understand there was some question, wow, you were really tough on the guys. I was simply trying to stop a... Uh, guys are just better, period, attitude. And I was going, no, 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 even Jesus and Paul highlighted out that is not correct. But that sounded a little heavy-handed. So I apologize if that's, if that's what some of you took. But once again, if I was teaching a conference on men in leadership, it would, it would end up sounding a little lopsided on the guy's side. We happen to be in a women in leadership conference. Does that make sense? So that's why. Super helpful, thank you. Um, so a well-known pastor, when asked about Beth Moore, stated that she should go home and added that there's no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion. While this isn't a salvation issue, many people outside the church see the church as oppressive to women because of statements like these. Now, here's the question. <laughs> How do we change this perspective while avoiding being div divisive amongst yeah. ourselves? Yeah, I, I think that um, how we debate, and I think debate is better than fighting, how we debate has to be handled very gently. Um, 
a question came up about, was I suggesting that Jesus was shaming people in order to make his point? I would like to address that briefly. Um, I don't, when we get caught on the idea of shaming, I think that sometimes God will point out stuff that is not good and it's embarrassing. And his point is to lead us into a different way. I think that's a little bit different than, than shaming. But when we get into a debate scenario, what we want to do is we want to match venom for venom. Does that make sense? So somebody will say something really insulting. And so our feeling rises up in us and we want to say something equally insulting back to them, right? When you do that, you end up going to a lowest common denominator of arguing. And then what happens is it just becomes a mud-throwing match and nothing gets solved because everyone digs in. What you'll notice, and I'll cite people like uh, Martin Luther King, one of the reasons why he was successful is that he had a spirit about him. I believe it was because he was involved in ministry. But he had a spirit about him that said, I understand what you're throwing my direction, but if I match you, I'm going to lose the argument. And he rose and kept this tone of crazy respect in the face of disrespect, but it advanced further than other people that were matching the venom. Does that make sense? And so when I hear these statements from, from pastors like that, I cringe. One of the things you're going to hear next week that I'm going to argue is that our stance about women, which in my opinion, the church has led too far on the women can't and haven't lean more into the whether women should, when they say women can't, it makes us look ignorant. It makes us look foolish. And one of the things that Paul, the apostle, was very concerned about was the testimony of the church. He never wanted God's name smeared. He never wanted uh, the church to be disrespected for the wrong reasons. So I would suggest to you and submit to you how we treat this issue, the world is watching. If we treat it with high respect, even if we don't all agree, but if we treat it with high respect, we're going to not further denigrate the view of the church in the world's eyes. I believe it is damaging our witness. I think there's a lot of areas that are damaging our witness, but I will tell you this, and this is where I'm going to lean in heavy next week. For anyone, I would say roughly under 30, the... A disrespect in this issue will close the door of church for them. Remember that people say that there's two um, conversions you have to go through. One is the conversion to Jesus, and the other one is trying to learn how to be a church person, right? We make that one really hard. And so I don't think they want anything to do with Jesus because the way that the church is demonstrating itself is something they're saying, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be denigrating. I don't want to be misogynistic or whatever. So I think that how we treat things is very, very important. In, night, in week one, we heard not to focus on order, Adam before Eve. But right. tonight, you talked a little bit about the importance of order in Scripture does matter. Yes. You know, Priscilla named before her husband. Yes. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, so once again, it's not a matter of we, we can do it this time and not this time without a reason. So, for example, my argument about not worrying about the order of creation was because there's two competing viewpoints. So if you say best is last, 
because animals were made and then mankind was made. And we go, well, the last one made was most important. Well, then that would mean women. But if you end up saying, but she came from him, that's more important. In other words, they're canceling themselves out. So I don't think that the order of creation is clear enough to draw a logical conclusion. But when it comes to naming people, there was a pattern of the genre that people outside of scripture would name things first in order of importance out of respect. So we have a appropriate reason to say that order matters, whereas this one is a bit too mysterious for us to make a good conclusion. Does that make sense? So it's not just willy-nilly. Well, yeah, I like it in this case, but not in this case. No, no, no. If we knew and could draw clear lines, I have no problem believing both would be valuable. It's too muddy to make the argument for creation intent. You talked a lot tonight about how the early church, you know. I worked. thought you were just going to stop there. Oh. <laughs> yes, I did. Sorry. About how the early church um, broke cultural norms yes. as far as women learning and teaching and having authority. Um, kind of thinking through church history, where did the early church then lose sight of this? And kind of how did we end up where women now feel kind of minimized in the church? Yeah, so... Um, and, and this is going to be a, a little challenging for some of us because we, we see it in other areas of society that aren't always healthy. Um, history is written by certain people. And other things are minimized. And once again, I know that that probably stirs up feelings for a lot of different people in a lot of different areas. But so uh, I have, because my doctoral thesis is on this issue, I have to grab... 40 books on this issue. Well, it's interesting. A bunch of them that are written by women go back through and they see it a lot in history, but you had to go scrap for it. In other words, just like in other areas of genre, women's poetry was very minimized and males were, their poetry was seen. So male, historically, will get the press. So it's very hard to track Females in the church, once there was a certain movement where it started getting a little bit crazy. So if you look at early church documents, a lot of things went a little bit sideways pretty early on. It's once you get through kind of the first and second wave, it starts getting a little squirrely. So for example, they had to stop the prophetic office in the church because it got so weird right off the bat. So... Um, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but in case you're trying to Google it, it's the Didache, right? It's one of the earliest Christian documents we have. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. That's not how it's pronounced, but that will sound a little better. When you read that, you start realizing they started putting rules and going, this office is getting weird. This is getting wrong. And they started shutting things down. Well, when you start having tension in the church, the easier thing is to just stop doing certain things rather than work through the difficulty. And unfortunately... Uh, the male dominance was pretty strong, and so women kind of went silent as far as recorded history. But you'll notice I was highlighting some things in tonight's teaching. Eusebius and these people saying, they're the follow of the apostolic succession. And he was mentioning women. That is heresy to people today. So certain things were acceptable early on. It just gets a little bit weird later on. Kind of like I said, in Jesus' day, women were actually treated a little better 
and then the rabbis actually got a little bit more extreme after that. History goes in waves and undulations, and so Christian history didn't do a good job of recording women. And then whatever was recorded was not publicized very often. You have to dig for it. If women are equal to men, why is the husband the head over the wife? I've heard this most of my life, but I'm still struggling to see why this is an accepted or, order or hierarchy based on gender alone. Yeah, um, the simplest answer I could give you is the Trinity. Uh, why was the son submitting to the father? Uh, and, and once again, you say because there's an order that God put into play. Uh, for he was channeling through a certain way and he created a headship for a reason. In the same way, the Father ha uh, sent the Son and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. We can all go back and argue why should it be if they're totally equal and the answer is, well, it's a bit mysterious, but a lot of it has to do with efficiency, <laughs> right? And so I, I think that in one sense you had, and this is why I do think that Adam being created first and, and his wife because once again, is Adam just a guy or a husband? Well, he's both. There is a certain order in the home that was created in creation, but then the curse made everything bad. It went from a cool trinity concept to a negative, but there was still a cool trinity concept from the beginning in the home between a husband and wife. It's always been that way. And it's, it has nothing to do with abilities, it has to do simply with calling. And so, I, I, you know, once again, you can say, why does God have the Trinity set up the way that it does? I, I don't know. Here's an easy one. How can we tell a name, in the, a name in the Bible is a woman's name or a men's name? Sometimes there's not a she or a her reference around it. Okay, I am, this is a pet peeve. I, the names of the dudes in the Bible, mm-mm. Claudia, that, like sometimes you'll, you'll have these very odd names that you'll go, that is clearly a woman's name. And they're like, nope, that's a dude. You're like, what? Okay, so here's how I cheat. I have a program called Logos. And I scroll my little mouse over it, and it says feminine. And I was like, yeah. So <laughs> that is called cheating. And uh, all you have to do is you can jump back and you can, and you can look at, uh, there are different endings in Greek that's, that highlight whether or not it's feminine or male. So, but that's one of those things that's not in your Bible, the way you look at it. Uh, so you would have to do a little bit of digging. But yes, it's very confusing. I would, I would like them all to change their names. <laughs> but no one asked me. That would be really helpful. It would be helpful. <laughs> um, it seems like you may be conflating patriarchy and hierarchy. Yes. I see these as two different concepts. They are. The opposite of patriarchy would be female-led matriarchy, matriarchy mm -hmm. but the opposite of hierarchy would be more like grassroots, faction-based leadership. Flat leadership. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, how do we see the structure, the latter structure? How do we, how does, do we see that God wants to organize the church? Yeah, uh, so... Once again, I argue that there is still structure, there is still hierarchy in the church because Jesus is the head and we're not. That automatically is a hierarchy. So are we all clear on that? So anytime you have God involved, there's a hierarchy because he's bigger and we're not. Now, am I using those where it sounds like I'm using them synonymously? Yes, are they the same concept? They are not. Here's my point. The patriarchy 
was supposed to be healthy, right? And the reason why we know that is God referred to himself as father. Patriarchy means coming from the father, as opposed to as a mother God would be a matriarchy. So I do believe it started with a purified patriarchy, but the curse made it a bad patriarchy. So now it's not a good thing anymore. But if we would purify it like Jesus did, it all of a sudden regains the glow and the beauty of what it was supposed to be. Hierarchy is only good if you don't have lording over one another. Does that make sense? I believe that God does work in structures where there is an authority, there is an efficiency, there is an effectiveness. But anytime you have humans jump in there, they start being mean to each other and there is a dominance. So if we could get back to a Jesus, God only hierarchy, patriarchy, I think we would all be blessed. But because of the way that it's been distorted over the centuries, they've taken a bad tone. Does that make sense? As a woman in leadership, sorry, now I can't find my spot. Um, what's your advice for serving people who God has tasked you with that may kind of resent your position over them? Humble leadership will root out resistant hearts. And that's for men and women. So, for example, when Paul had Timothy, he said, Set an example and don't let them look down on you because you're young. Do you remember that? So in other words, people were dishonoring him because of his age. So what was his answer? Win them over by how you live and they can't deny me flowing through you as God. And when they can't deny, they have to humble themselves or at least figure out, what do I do? What if the best person for the job Allowing God to flow through them best is someone I don't want to be in charge. What if they're still great and I can't deny that God is with them? I have to revisit my assumptions. So I think it's the case, no matter how people are looking down on you, if you're able to show rather than tell, it breaks down a lot of barriers. However, there will be some people that will not at all, regardless of facts, change their opinion. They're unwilling to listen. And you go, what am I doing wrong? You're actually doing nothing wrong. I need you to just be consistent and let God deal with them. But many people can be won over by sheer demonstration of a great life. Because when you get old enough and you stop arguing about silly things, you reflect back and you're looking for stuff that matters. You just get tired of all the noise and you're looking for somebody that actually has the power of God. Like that's kind of how I feel about church is I'm like, I'm tired of strategies. I'm tired of people coming up with cool ideas. I'm tired of all that. I just want real God stuff. And whoever comes in with real God stuff, they have my respect and my attention right off the bat, regardless of their packaging. But sometimes when you're new to it and you just want to fight about words, you're probably not listening and caring about any of that stuff. So some people you're going to have a hard time winning over. So this will be our last one. Okay. It's got to be a little quick. 
Okay. Um, have you been facing spiritual attack and bringing forth this message? Why do you feel it's important to fight this battle now? And then how can we pray for you as the church in regard to this? Um, so I don't know if it's this or the 40-day fast process, <laughs> but everything in my house and cars has broken down. <laughs> Not sure what's going on. All I know is anytime I lead into things or I'll do a podcast on spiritual warfare and then everything falls apart, here's the problem with me trying to discern this stuff. It's my job. I'm doing it all the time. So I feel like stuff just breaks all the time anyway, right? And I'm like, I don't know if this is regular life. I don't know if any of you guys are going through the same thing that I'm going through. But as a pastor, I feel like I'm under a target 24 hours a day, and since I've been doing this my whole life, how do I know any different? So the answer is, I have no clue. I know my life's really hard. I know stuff keeps falling apart on me, and it gets worse sometimes. Where I think the prayer is, because here's what, I do things because they're right, not because they're easy. My prayer is that what we do matters. Because if what you're doing matters, then it's okay that it's hard. Does that make sense? If you're doing something difficult and it doesn't matter, you just wanna quit, right? But if what you do matters, okay, I have a hard life. I signed up for that. If I get to have a hard life because I'm serving Jesus, bring it. But, but if I'm out there and there's no real ministry happening and there's no real transformation and there's no real God stuff, this is a dumb life. Does that make sense? So the big prayer is, Lord, may it be effective. If you disagree with my view, you're still allowed, Lord, open his eyes, right? You can pray that one too. That's okay. All I'm saying is that when you pray, what you don't want is the kingdom less. You want the kingdom of God greater. So however you can pray for that, and in whatever flavor you feel strong about it, Lord, defend what the enemy is trying to do with, with hurting pastor or the church. Okay, cool. You want to go spiritual warfare? Bring it. That's awesome. Defend us. If you want to pray in truth and awareness and all these other beautiful things, pray that. Because as long as you're praying to the Lord out of a good heart, we're going to win. Does that make sense? And so, that, yeah, that's what I want. And so, um, ultimately, in, in this next season, you know, we got the question prior, what ultimately do you want out of this, Pastor? Like, what are you hoping for practically? And what did I tell you? I said, I want the freedom to do what the Lord asked me to do without hitting a brick wall of opinion. Does that make sense? So, I clear space out so that I can have room to respond to the Holy Spirit without somebody calling me a heretic just because I'm trying to follow the Lord, right? And so you say, why now? Um, to be honest with you, uh, leading a church is hard and there's lots to do. And I have, I have had a variety of growth elements and different things that we needed to change as a church decade after decade. And there comes a time when the Holy Spirit starts amping and turning up the dial where you get so uncomfortable. It's why we did the supernatural. It gets so uncomfortable that you go, I don't want to do this anymore if this is not true in my church. And that's where I got to. 
I got to a place where I did not, I did not want to lead Bridgeway further into the future without having this settled and opened up. Because I feel that where God is calling us needs some space to stretch and move. That's, that, that's my heart. So I really, I really do appreciate you giving me your time and listening to all of this and letting us go through. I know we, we kept you late tonight. Um, this matters to me. And I want to re, as we close, I want to re-highlight why it matters. Because I believe it's God's heart. I could go on in ministry without addressing this if I was focused only on me. That's not why I'm in this job. I'm doing it because I believe it's biblically right. And I believe that it wasn't being done well. So that's why I do it. Um, Does it cause me problems? Sure does. Oh well, I gotta let God sort that one out, right? Um, but, But thank you. Thank you for walking through. Well, we are ready to dive in to our Q&A time. And we are going to start actually with a question that we had last week that we didn't have time for. Um, And it is, can you elaborate a bit more on the biblical basis for male and female deacons and deaconesses and what that looks like in leadership? Yeah, so first of all, there's this scriptural piece to it, that when we read some of the deacon lists, right? So for example, it'll say, these are the qualifications for elders. These are the qualifications for deacons. When we read that, one of the passages ends up talking about females in the same passage. So in one translation of the Bible, you'll see it and it says, and their wives should be. Now, once again, I told you before that wife and woman are the same word, right? Man and husband are the same word. You have to know in context whether it's talking about wives or just women in general. So you have to make a translation judgment on that. What, what another way to look at it is saying, and the men deacons, which would say you need to be the husband of one wife, stuff like that, that it actually says, and the women, as opposed to, and their wives, and then it starts giving qualifications. So it's almost as if the scripture uh, would be saying, here's the list for the male deacons, here's the list for the female deacons. Now, in addition to that, we know from church history that there was female deaconesses. We know that in Scripture, Paul referred to Phoebe as a deaconess. And I, what I explained was it gets super complicated because uh, diakonos, or the, the, the concept where we get deacon from, is really a common term. And it's much more about servanthood. So you're going, yeah, well, they're just a helper. And you go, yeah, kind of except it's the same way he would talk about all his big dogs. So you go, no, by that time, the church was morphing, right? The church was putting in structure and organization. For example, in the very beginning, you see that the book of Acts was a kind of a nightmare because these widows were getting fed, but these widows weren't. And then the leadership were like, hey, we need to have some deacons in here. And it's the same word. Hey, Stephen, you come in here. Philip, you come in here. We need some guys to manage stuff while we go study what we know of Scripture 
And we're really trying to pray and hear the revelation of God. We have our little tasks, you have to do your little task. And that was creating now a new strata layer of church leadership called deacon. So you're never quite sure, are they a helper or are they have it as an official title? Because Christianity was so new, nothing was formalized at that point. So you kind of had to learn in context. So the idea of a female deacon is putting all the pieces together, knowing for sure there was a classification of deacons, realizing that, and reading early church historians talking about the female deacon class, and it goes on and on and on. So when you put all the pieces together, you have character references or character demands for men and character references and character demands for females. But they're both serving in the same way. My purpose in relating that out was when we got to the issue of a female apostle or a female elder. Once again, the qualifications say must be a man of one wife, a one-woman man is basically the translation. And people go, well, that's why they're all dudes. That's why they all have to be males. And you go, hold on. The deacons were the same way, but we know that there were female deacons. So clearly, the point was not about gender, but about character. We, can't, we have to have certain charactered people serving in high offices of the church. So I hope that answered your question. Was that about where you thought it was going? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and you also talked a lot about elders tonight. Yeah. Uh, where will, women, will, there, will there be women elders at Bridgeway? When and how will this happen? Yeah, so um, our, we have elders transitioning out. The, there's a number of them. Uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking at Lane right now. Uh, Lane is one of those, and he's been on the board far too long. Let's just say that, right? Not from my vantage point, of course, sir, but, but from just tenure. And so we have some, uh, some leadership transitioning out. We need to backfill. Well, we actually need four new elders for the fall. So when we, what, the way that this always works is that we present out to the congregation and kind of say, hey, do you have any recommendations? Well, every year and every time we do that, we always get female recommendations. Hey, I would love this or whatever, whether or not somebody has been here for a while and noticed, you know, I've never seen a female elder before. They just always submit names. So in this process, part of letting everyone kind of soak on it and kind of chew on it and search through scripture is to say that when we come around this side, we're going to be notifying everybody and saying, remember, whatever names you want to bring as a recommendation to us, I would love to be able to integrate into the fall two female elders along with some more male elders so that we can begin to have a representation on the board. And so that's kind of the, the plan of integration, if that makes any sense. Now, once again, uh, we're always checking in with the Lord about, because remember, there's, there's two different issues. One is, what does the Bible say? And the other one is, what can the community sustain? Does that make sense? So you're always worried about accuracy and timing. So the, our elder board is always praying through that stuff and making sure we're doing things in the right timing. So if there's a delay on that, we would be able to notify you. What would you say to the people that would still make the argument that if women were equal, why weren't they created first? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think we equate equality with value. Um, so here's the thing. 
I have already mentioned that I believe that it was very significant that God created Adam first. I did not say that is nothing. It is actually very important. I said I'm not quite sure the, the meaning of it. But I do know it is significant. I do believe that as he was created in the image of God, and so was the woman, but as he was created in the image of God, he carried on that maleness, right? As I told you, God has been revealing himself to us uh, in a male way. God the Father, the Son, right? And then the Holy Spirit is referred to as he. So when the male was created in that, there was a necessity of him. He was very important. But then there was a phrase that said, it is not good that he's all by himself. So in God's creation, there was a design flaw. He could not carry out the callings of God alone. Then another was created. Now we go, well, you always give the, most, the first one the most important stuff. Be careful with that because if you remember, Ishmael was born before Isaac, but Isaac was the chosen son of Abraham. Just because you're first doesn't mean you're best. I think we have to be very careful with saying people, we put them in strata layers of more important and less important. I think we can put concepts as more important or less important. We need to be very careful with people. So although I believe that man and woman are unique and distinct, I still believe that they are equally valuable, but they're just different. And so is it important Adam was created first? Yes. Is it important Eve was created second? Yes. Is it important that they're both incredibly valuable in the plans of God? Yes. Do we need both of them? Yes. That's how I would answer that question. Could you comment further on women in leadership in parachurch organizations, but not as much in the local church? Should, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, There's go. a second part. Yeah. Should we be seeking leadership roles in our local church, making ourselves more available? Any suggestions other than the obvious of pray? Yeah, I think that, um, so first of all, parachurch organizations don't follow the same rules. Why? Not sure. Depends on the organization. The other thing, and it was mentioned in one of our guest speaking testimonies, the weird and very insulting concept that women can preach on the mission field, but not at home. I think everybody is very clear. If you put the pieces together, that means that any other adult males of any other color or ethnicity outside of America are not fully human and male, so you can teach them like children. Are we all clear on what it was conveying throughout the years? There's a lack of equality view. That's why they allowed women to preach outside the nation and not back home. That whole thing is messed up, right? Everything about that is wrong. But when we have organizations that do not have the same expectations, right? So if you go to a church, there's an expectation. Okay, well, you guys got to order it this way. There's a senior leader, and then there's a board, and then there's this, and there's that. When you start putting all those parameters in there, there becomes a greater expectation of how it should be done. When you're a nonprofit, and you're like, man, I'm the only person out here. I run my own business. Man, I'm not tied. Yeah, I partner with the church. They're not telling me what to do. I don't have their elder board looking over my shoulder. I can do whatever I want. There's more freedom. So parachurch, nonprofits, missions organizations have rarely followed the same stringent guidelines that were held in traditional church. Now, what do you do? If you want to say, listen, I want to use my gifts. So almost all leadership is addressing an issue in front of you. 
That's how it starts. Oh, there's a need. I can meet that need. So I think that if you're gifted for something, you are presenting yourself of, I see that need. Would you like me to handle that? I think that's probably the most gentle, humble way for all leaders, male and female, to present whether or not somebody would like to include them. They may say, no, we got it. And they may really mean, no, we got it. Or they may say, I don't think you're the one because of who you are or your gifting or your talents. Or they may say, I don't think you're the right gender for the job. Now, I, you would maybe have to dig a little bit in there, but if you're just trying to peacefully find where God has a place for you, be available, be present, and suggest to everybody what you can do to help out. When someone comes in with an agenda, I would like to have a position. I don't care what gender you are, I immediately can't use you because your heart's wrong. Something's weird about how you're handling yourself. So I would, I would suggest for anybody looking for, God, what do you have for me? Walk in with humility, just get stuff done. That's ultimately the best place. Now, are you going to be praying for open doors and open windows? Because here's how it happens a lot of times. I was going along my merry way, trying to avoid being a pastor, and I was going to go down and be a Christian professor, and then all of a sudden, an opening opened up. Hey, would you come guest speak for us? Sure, I love talking about God. And God was like, whoosh, and he snagged me like a trap. So, so yeah, it was all, yeah, praise God, that happened, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but once again, that's how leadership works. There was an opportunity, I took it, and God moved from there. Just be available. One more question. Yeah. Um, regarding the cultural considerations around women as senior pastors, yes. um, isn't it possible that just as men, men can think beyond themselves and minister to women, could women pastors do the same thing and minister to men? Absolutely. And, th and that's why I were, when I kept mentioning that it might be just cultural, it's an idea of hundreds of years, thousands of years of tradition. And so you go, oh, okay, if you're going to draw out and have the little kids draw a picture on the fridge, a lot of times they'll go, here's the daddy one, and he's taller. Is that always the case? It is not. But there's this constant... Well, yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes. Okay, so daddy's this one, and then there's mommy one, and then there's the kiddo ones. Okay, so there's traditions that have already been set in motion that we're very familiar with. So we go into autopilot on this stuff, right? And we're not always thinking about how can I break the mold? So to say, hey, you as a female pastor, could you lead and guide the men to be engaged and strong and powerful in their gifting in the Lord? Absolutely, will they give you a shot? That's the only question I have. I'm not saying you can't do it. Actually, I think that you probably, probably have some brilliant insights that you might be able to light them aflame even. And just like we were talking about, uh, when I was talking about dads ministering to daughters' inner worth and moms ministering to boys' inner worth, there may even be an element of that where a mother figure is speaking and saying, son, you need to stand up in the church. And he's like, I need to stand up in the church. Well, dad's been saying that forever and he's not listening to him, right? So is there even some beautiful ideas like that? Yes. My only question was, will they let you? 
before they just abdicate and bail out. When you're dealing with, whether it's design or dysfunction or culture or whatever, people are messy. And you may have all these grand plans. People don't let you do what you just want to do. And you may say, but I love you. And they go, and they still run away from you. You know, there's, there's a lot of fear in a lot of people, and it seems the fear seems to be increasing these days. Everyone's afraid of something that's going to go bad. And, and we don't really have a lot because everything's kind of falling apart in our world in a bunch of different ways, and so we're like, I only have a few things I'm hanging on to, right? And then somebody shakes that. Oh, I don't know what to do, and we just bail out. So I know I was sharing, and, and once again, if you're a female senior pastor, which we have a couple of them here, understand, I'm for you. I just don't understand whether or not you're being frustrated by culture. Is it being frustrated by the Lord? Is this a design thing? Is it a creation thing? Is it just a what year we're living in right now and everything can suddenly clear up next year? I don't know. But when I'm going to address a subject this deep about women in ministry, remember, my job is not just to make my point and do a great commercial. My job is to examine all the elements. And if I don't feel peaceful on an element, I'm going to call it out. My job is not just to win an argument. My job is to bring truth and wisdom. Amen? Amen. So that, that's kind of what I was bringing in. We have one last question. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read it as okay. it is and see how you interpret it. Great. <laughs> in the is garden, it, wait, wait, hold on. Is it in English? It is in English. Okay, good. This is the, I'm not trying to trip you up. Okay, good. <laughs> in the garden, God's instruction given to Adam, who then related to Eve, were to not eat of one tree. They had every opportunity and more, but the one opportunity to show their love by obedience to that specific command. Mm -hmm. Satan's temptation was that perhaps God was holding out on them and Eve was missing out. How would you reconcile that biblical account with the argument that women should be in the pulpit and boardroom in order that we don't miss out or in order to unlock more? Okay, so I think, I think I'm hearing through that. First of all, there is a misread at the beginning of the question, uh, which is, I do not believe that God gave the instructions to Adam and then Adam had to give them to Eve. That actually isn't said in scripture anywhere. So first of all, we gotta lay that out. It is likely that God gave them to Adam and then God repeated them to Eve. So the idea that it had to go through the channel of the guy to her, that's actually an assumption. Um, so I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm good with it there. But I think that at the heart of the question, it was how do we know that adjusting something like this, where, we, where the Lord would go, listen, I just said, I don't want women in the pulpit. I don't want women to be in this area. I just need you to trust me in obedience. How do we know that we're not sliding out by the temptation of the enemy? If, if Adam and Eve, the whole point was just be obedient. Just hang in there and do what I asked you to do. Um, and once again, I'm not quite sure I'm reading through the question super well, but, but I believe this is the heart of it. How do we know that we're not being tricked or, or we're bringing deception or that in some way we're not being obedient to the word? Um, this is why throughout the series, I have mentioned it numerous times. If I didn't think it was in scripture, I wouldn't have brought it to you. It's not that I'm trying to make something work. 
So I don't feel like God's holding out on me. I don't feel like there's any temptation to it. Let's be real clear on this. This costs me. Yeah? I'm not getting a benefit from it. So there's no incentive for me to do anything other than what I believe is in Scripture. Right? So I think you would question it if there was a benefit. Right? I don't get any benefit from this. I think the church benefits because it's godly. But I don't have any personal benefit. It only causes me headache and problems. So I'm like, whatever. So if it was a temptation, it's a lousy temptation. And Satan did a terrible job. Um, so for me, I don't think this is a matter of being obedient. If I saw, there are a number of issues in Scripture that I hang on to out of obedience that are not popular. I'll give you a, a, a non-controversial one, right? There's a lot of controversial ones I hold on to. Um, but I don't want to get into those and uproar a whole other problem. Hell. That's not very popular. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, just put on the back of your car, you're all going to hell, and see how that works out for you. Um, I believe that God teaches the concept in Scripture of eternal damnation. That is not popular. It's not easy. It's not light. It's not anything. I hold on to that, and I'm holding on to it obediently because I don't see another way in Scripture. So that would be, now there's a benefit if I would just go, man, it'd be neat if I could just tell everybody there's no such thing as hell. Boy, that makes everything easier, right? I can't do that. I don't ever do things because they're easier. You do things because they're right. That's why. So I, I hope I was understanding your question, um, but in no way is this some type of benefit or temptation of any sort. It doesn't help me in any way. So sorry, hope I answered it. That was great. Okay, good, 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 <laughs> fantastic.